You're listening to Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs, a podcast offered in partnership with Missio Alliance. Each episode, we discuss internal and relational pressures, how they block effective leadership, and how we can move through them to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Cuss. Friends, before we get to our guests, just a couple of quick thoughts. Uh, one of the things I'm interested in is how changing countries and kind of putting yourself in an unfamiliar situation can really grow your faith. And of course, there's really no one more qualified to talk about that than somebody who is or has been a missionary. But even in my own life, you know, I grew up in Perth, Western Australia, and I've been living in the United States for 25, 27 years now. But it was fascinating to me, particularly in the first few years of being here, what it was like to be in a culture where all of my cultural cues and familiarities were removed. You know, even though Australia and United States are Western cultures, even though we speak the same language, we think and act and we see the world so differently that coming to a different culture was an incredible experience for me and depending on God more and and finding ways that God was working way beyond the way I thought. So I'm always interested in people who are kind of third culture people, people who are maybe born in one culture, live in another and never quite feel at home in either And in many ways, that describes our guest today, uh, Dr. Matt Rawlins. Matt started out as a missionary in Asia with YWAM, with Youth with a Mission, and he's been living in Singapore ever since. Uh, He is now a leadership consultant, and uh, he got his PhD in leadership and communication from University of Wales. What got Matt uh, started, why I wanted him on this show, is he studies the nature of tension in leadership. Now, of course, this show is mostly about anxiety, and I thought it would be interesting to get Matt's take on the difference between tension and anxiety and stress. Matt gets into that and a whole lot more on today's episode. Matt, welcome to the show. Let's let's just get started about what ended up, uh, what got you uh, in Asia. I know you did some mission work before you moved into yeah. leadership consulting. So tell us how you yeah. ended up in Asia. Well, you know, it's a dangerous thing to fall in love with God. And uh, and I grew up in a church, and I guess the condensed version is, I had this picture of a distant, removed, a little bit angry, indifferent God. And then I fell in love with him, and I realized my problem was I was lonely, and he was the only one who could meet my needs. And I was uh, 20, and I did in Youth with a Mission, what we call a discipleship training school, and uh, fell in love with God. And I knew I couldn't go home, so one of the guys on the staff said, hey, uh, Want to come start a new base in Saipan? I thought, great, where's Saipan? Went to Saipan, uh, three years there, a year in Hong Kong, met my wife, moved to Singapore. Um, so those, yeah, those first 10 years of my life were with Youth with a Mission in uh, in Asia. And I, uh, yeah, I, I loved it and I loved, uh, I loved the people out here. Yeah, and then it was your work in missions and also your work with missionaries that had you really starting to notice just the general theme of tension and the tension people carry. Uh, tell us yeah. what got you started there. Well, you know, I, I I really had, to be honest, I really had, I was a typical American, and, and I don't want this to come across the wrong way, but I, I grew up kind of very one-dimensional, very kind of limited in my perspective of the world. Um, almost arrogant, maybe, in the aspect that if the world wanted to communicate to me, they could communicate to me as a, an American and learn my language and learn my thoughts. And so when I went overseas, I realized that the world was a very different place. I can remember once sitting on a little bench in Saipan, and a little local boy, tomorrow was sitting there, and I, you know, I'm 21 years old, I'm trying to grow a mustache, and 
because facial hair is what makes a man. And then this little Chamorro boy is running his finger across my mustache. And he has this kind of old sound going on. And I think, okay, so in one culture, growing hair makes you a man. In another culture, it makes you a freak. The local Chamorros were not hairy people. So I, it really kind of stirred me in this journey to think, well, what does it mean to be a man? And what does it mean to, you know, how do we, what's cultural and what's not cultural? What's human? And what does it mean to be made in the image of God? And so that really kind of opened the doors, you know, being in Hong Kong. And then I'd go down on the streets and, evening and play basketball with some of the local guys and, and then you'd go out to a well uh, a local eating place and you know they'd serve you up pig's intestines or you know pig's feet or some of these things and you you think okay so this is a test of manhood and you know what where can I eat where do I enter into this culture so all of these things really got me stirred up and trying to see kind of what's the deeper things going on in light of God. And, and because my desire was to understand, I want to understand who God is and how he made us. Um, so yeah, th those, that kind of swung that door wide open for me in regards to uh, humanity. What does it mean to be male? What does it mean to be human? What is it, you know, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? How does a good God make us with so much tension um, in this process? And those are really the things that got me uh, stirred up and moving in this direction. Yeah, so the work you do now, like I know you actually got your PhD in leadership and communication. Yeah. Uh, the work you do now really is in helping people understand the tension they carry, the tension that happens in groups. Yeah. Maybe we could just start uh, by just helping people first diagnose how do people know when they're tense? <laughs> well, you know, that's a great question. Um <laughs> It requires self-awareness. In other words, what might be tension for me, and tension is, I, let me go back, let me take a step back and, and look at a, a presupposition, because most people, uh, what I discovered in, within myself and in my early days of research was most people assume that tension is wrong, and they assume that tension um, is means, you know, I've done something wrong. And as I began to look at it and explore it, I realized that um, tension isn't, doesn't mean something is wrong. And uh, that was one of the earliest things that I had to redo in my whole kind of internal grid. You know, you start to look at the kingdom of God and you start to realize that God creates a garden and he puts, I mean, the first instance is he makes Adam and Eve is in Adam. So Adam is, I guess you could say, both male and female, intrinsically created. And then God has the audacity, he used that this tinge bit of humor, um, to rip the woman out of him. Um, this is all before the fall. And to then say, here's the woman, here's the man, you guys figure it out. Well, you know, here's this woman who's been ripped out of this man who is fully completed yet incomplete. And then they've got to figure out how to put it back together. And you look at a tree in a garden and it creates tension. You look at God allowing a serpent into the garden and there's tension. So I, I, I had to reorientate myself to go, well, God, you must view tension differently than me and you must not be afraid of it. And when I, when I began to cross that threshold, it started to change my understanding of, of tension in a whole new way. And I thought, okay, then I've got to, I've got to figure out how you view tension and learn to walk into it and be present in it rather than, because my, my initial response is fight or flight. Well, I'm, I'm a coward at heart. I know that. I mean, I, my, my tension, when there's tension, my first automatic response is I want to hide. And uh, 
So all of these things, you know, were a part of my own maturing process to try to think, okay, I'm intention. I own that this is what's going on in me and become aware of when it's a healthy tension, which pulls me into life, when it kind of drops off the edge and becomes stress, and then it's unhealthy in life. And if there's not enough tension, then I become bored and apathetic. So really tension is the life is the management of a healthy tension or a tension in life that requires God, love, um, to be actively engaged in a process. Yeah, you're kind of describing tension almost like a rubber band. Like we need some yeah. pressure, but too much breaks us, but not enough. We're not, I don't know, don't yeah. serve our purpose or something. Yeah, it's good visual. Yeah, I think, Matt, you, you uh, I, I don't know if you've written about it or spoken about it, but it seems like your early journey in noticing tension came by looking at missionaries and how they react to uncertainty and ambiguity. Yeah, yeah. Could you talk to us a yeah. bit about that? Yeah, well, a lot of, again, because I studied organizational change and I studied um, emissions and, and organizational change and leadership and difficult conversations, um, I've lost my thought. What was your question again? Sorry. Yeah, we're talking about, you first got started by noticing missionaries and, and how yeah. they responded to ambiguity and uncertainty. Yeah, so so the, the uncertainty is a key word for me because when I went into these other cultures, I, I, I didn't I didn't know what the cues were. You know, the safety of your own culture is you know what the cues are. But in another culture or in another context, you're outside of what you're comfortable with. And so you live in a constant state of uncertainty. And uh, so that I, I didn't realize that that was actually great preparation for the world that we live in now because the world is so uncertain. And I didn't realize that all those years of living in uncertainty, living in other cultures and listening to people and trying to pick up the cues and the innuendos and the unspokens and, the, and, and, and that the world really now, the thing that we're struggling with as businesses, as leaders, as in the organizations, is we don't know what tomorrow holds. I mean, if we look at just the whole virus thing going on now, it's just complete uncertainty. And so part of it is getting, learning to be grounded in a sense of who you are so that uncertainty, so the external doesn't get a chance to define who you are. And this, you know, this whole aspect of systems and, and individual and who I am in the system and yet separate from the system began in Adam and Eve, complete in himself yet incomplete alone. There's something bigger that he's got to be involved in, but yet he's self-defined in regards to given freedom to be who God is in him. So, I mean, these are all the things that over the years, wrestling with and trying to figure out in light of falling in love with God, who is this and how do we live in uncertainty? And missionaries, for better or for worse, we live with uncertainty all the time. We're, we're dealing with people who don't have our worldview. Um, and, I, you know, I, I, it's not really fair to say missionaries. All of us it, do that. We just don't realize we're doing that. Yeah, give us an example of some of these cues. I'm fascinated by that. I'm I'm a West Australian living in the United States. We're, yeah. we're both Western cultures, but you know yeah. we we think so differently from each other, Aussies and Americans. And yeah. I can totally relate to this cue idea. Whether you like the amount of times I've either caused unintentional offense or I've been the butt of someone's joke because of what I've done or said. Yeah, uh, it's kind yeah. of part of the delight of living in another country. But you're <laughs> totally right; it, it opens up my soul to depending on God in a way that living in yeah. my own culture wouldn't. I'm, yeah. I'm sure in Singapore you must have so many stories like that. <laughs> well, you know, you um, 
Yeah, I mean, when I go to work, because I, I do work with, um, and basically I run learning groups and I facilitate learning in groups. And uh, it's not, you know, so I've got to, I've got to figure out how to be present with people who are different from me. And, and I really the key for me is um, if I can get comfortable in my humanity, then I can meet anybody else in humanity. And it requires a greater depth within myself so that, yeah, you know, me and Aussies or me and Kiwis or me and Singaporeans or me and Chinese doesn't matter. But if I, if I go below the personality and I duck down beneath the culture and I get down to human or humanity, I find that I can meet just about anybody in that humanity and we can have a heart to heart conversation around what are common desires or common fears or common longings or these type of things. So it first requires in a willingness in me to go deep enough to meet someone else in that place. And it, it's a little slower and it takes a little bit more time, but yeah, you, you know, so I, I work almost all the time uh, with people outside my culture. And um, if I'll slow down and engage them, I can meet them in that place. And then I don't have to worry about, um, the cues automatically. If I don't know, I just say I don't know. Or I can take it to a deeper and go, and I think this is what this person is trying to say, and try to figure out how to then engage them in a way that allows me to be able to do that. So that's been kind of the fun and terror of the process. <laughs> yeah, and it, it seems like, you know, tension is a response on some level to threat. You yeah. Know, if, if we take the word tension away and we we bring in the word anxiety, then you know, chronic anxiety is when you feel like you're under threat when you're not really. Yeah. Um, would you have yeah. an example off the top of your head, Matt, of when, for whatever reason, you have felt some form of threatened in the moment where you then react or, you know, operate out of tension instead of out of uh, connection? Yeah. And, and, and again, languaging here is going to be really important. And why I use the word tension is because we – I'm trying to kind of relanguage tension to get people because people often assume tension is anxiety and, and, or stress. And they all mean the same thing. And part of what I'm trying to help people realize is tension is a, is a normal, healthy dose of being, it's what pulls me into a process. I need the tension. So when, you know, it happens almost on a, a course basis. So I go in, I'm running a learning group, which is just a safe place for, people to have healthy conversations. So I don't go in with an agenda. I don't go in trying to control. And, and, and I could pick any situation where I go and I go, okay. I mean, personally, I'm an introvert. So I, I'm not really good at kind of the nice, chatty, social. Um, I, I, you know, I want to slow down a little bit. So anytime I walk in, uh, so I, I mean, literally anytime I walk into a group, it's like, okay, slow down. Attention is needed in this group, so I, I'm not trying to control because the fruit of tension is often in the fight or flight mode is to try to control. And so part of what a, a good facilitator or a good um, dialogue is rooted in is someone not trying to control the, the agenda or the meeting, but still being fully present in the midst of it. So part of it is learning. For me, it's learning when I'm the tension, it's pulling them in and, and, and it's more emotional than rational. So validating the, the sense of unease that often is interpreted as tension and then learning to go, okay, now, and then what am I afraid of? And then, you know, 
starting to say, okay, I, have, I don't have to fear that. I can just be present in the midst of this. And then I'll sometimes tease myself and say, okay, I got to put my big boy pants on because this, I don't need to hide in this situation. What I want to do is make it a safe place for people to have a conversation with me. And, and that's then the choice that I make each time I go into this group um, because we're going to spend hours together is, okay, how do I, how do I lower the anxiety or the tension? I embrace the tension within myself and create a safe enough place to then give people permission to kind of be present in the midst of it. And that's, that's an ongoing, that's almost a daily choice that I have to make um, when, I, when I'm going to work. Yeah, I think uh, it was really interesting as you started that you just said that the words are important and tension and stress and anxiety are different things. I wonder if you might just briefly define each of them for us. Yeah, so in my language, and I'm not going to go to too technical. For me, tension is any sort of difference between personality, goals, values, um, you know, uh, cultural expressions or often one in expectations. Um, so there's just a difference in focus. So um, if, if I go back in and I, and I begin from a biblical basis, I go, okay, God made us in his image, but he's big enough to be able to handle a diversity. So diversity is going to create tension. So me and you are naturally going to have tension, and that's a healthy thing. Tension summons love. Without tension, you don't need love. So for me, tension is just a difference, a difference in, and then you could fill in that. Anxiety is I'm not managing the tension very well. And stress is I'm over the edge with my anxiety. And then I'm into an unhealthy dynamic of um, fight or flight or just freeze in that moment. So um, anxiety is a lack of handling, acknowledging and dealing with the tension. And then stress is over the edge. I'm not in a healthy place. And, uh, you know, I, I might do that periodically. But but what kills us long term, I think the 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 immune system is destroyed when we try to live in stress long term. And I think those are the those are the differences that people have to be clear on to understand a healthy life. Oh, that's really that's really great. I think just laying out the three step process. What's interesting to me then, Matt, is how does somebody know when they're crossing from the threshold into anxiety and from anxiety into stress? Yeah, uh, you know, it's it's. This, this gets into such a hard place because it's we have to define our words now because the word, you know, no, it's almost been hijacked by the scientific community, which is a quantifiable, you know, data driven, a behavioral thing. And it's it's really not the word no from a biblical basis is an experience. So so what what you have to help people understand is when I'm in experiencing this. This is what's healthy. And oftentimes you have to kind of reverse engineer your way back to a healthy mode because most people aren't self-aware. So what they end up doing is only becoming aware when they're in anxiety mode and it's already too late in the process. So sometimes what I try to do is say, okay, when you're in anxiety, label this emotion. So they might, you know, I will say I'm I'm uncomfortable. And then I go, and what's the emotion before this? And they go, oh, um, you know, self-conscious. Then I go, okay, so then Part of what you've got to be aware of at an earlier stage in that emotional self-awareness is when I'm in a self-conscious mode, then that's a healthy mode for me to be in. But when I get into the, you know, whatever that next emotion stage is, is the intensity of it, 
then that that's when it's too late in the process. So it's helping people. And as I said, it's a little bit hard because people will have different words for different emotions and they'll be, they'll, their self-awareness will kick in usually only at that later stage of anxiety. And part of this is becoming aware of going, okay, no, this is when I need to be aware. I'm self-conscious now. And so sometimes I'll self, you know, I, again, I tell myself, as I said, this is when I put on my big boy hat because I'm not going to go into a defensive behavior. I'm not going to try to control the outcome. I'm going to walk into this and go, okay, now I need to be sociable in this situation. I need to, and be comfortable within myself. And as I do that, and then each person has got to figure out where they get outside their comfort zone and then help them language. Okay. So what is, what does it mean for me to be here? And what does it mean for me to be out of here? And that's the negotiation process that all of us are in. That's what we call life. Yeah. My father-in-law, uh, he, he talks about a comfort zone as a, a region or a range. Like if you draw yeah. a circle and he said, what we do is we, we put ourselves right in the middle of the comfort zone, very comfortably safe in the comfort zone. He <laughs> yeah. said, but actually, you know, there's plenty of room to move around in there, but if we don't yeah. move around, it shrinks in and encloses on us. It's, if, I'm, if I'm hearing you right, you're casting a vision to know and name your own limits and then gently stretch them a little bit. Yes, absolutely. Because the, because uncertainty says there's going to be almost a gray zone where I feel a little bit uncomfortable. And, and in some senses, that's what learning is. So in many ways, learning is unlearning. So part of what I have to unlearn is what made me feel safe. So what made me feel safe was rules or regulations. And in an uncertain world, those I don't, you know, those that hinder me. So part of it is, is that, you know, the Johari window of the depth of understanding myself and where it's a blind spot and what I'm willing to do and expanding that capacity. And what I love about Jesus is he's able to be fully present in so many situations and not be reactive or anxious and bring that to people. But he's willing to engage anybody who meets him in this. And, and again, the first thing God does when sin enters in the world is he becomes fully present. He shows up in the garden and he says, you know, he's pr fully present. And then he begins to ask questions. And, and he, his invitation to Adam and Eve is with three questions. Where are you? Who told you? And have you eaten? So there's there's this sense of his invitation to say, OK, I know that you have now opened the door. And I'm inviting you to own the fruit of this in your life. And I can figure it out, but I need you to own this. And that's what leadership really has to struggle with in this process of uncertainty and um, engaging, um, yeah, broken world. Yeah. I, I think something that would be helpful for people, because in some ways, Matt, we're talking a little conceptually. Um, <laughs> is maybe you could name for people some defense mechanisms. Because if I'm listening to you, you're really casting a vision that rather than waiting for anxiety to have you in its grip, you can actually start to know the kinds of situations and thinking that makes you anxious and you can start to preempt it walking into those yes. situations. So I think it'd be helpful if you could maybe give us three or four defense mechanisms that you've seen in people, whether it's in yourself or others, that would help people kind of hang their hat on this a bit. Yeah. So, uh, you know, if we look at some of the typical ones, we, you know, the language would be where I become overperforming. And, and again, that's just I become over engaged. They become over responsible. So. So, for instance, I work with people who are responsible. And if you looked at strength finders, it's actually a gift. And the funny and thing the is, curse. I don't. 
Yes, and a curse. And I, thankfully, in many ways, I don't have the gift of responsibility. Now, that's not an excuse for irresponsibility. But in the language of people, being responsible means they're responsible for everything. And so they only have two modes, which is I'm responsible or I'm not responsible. And not being responsible is defined as irresponsibility. So in those two modes, of course, who wants to be irresponsible? Because that then makes them feel vulnerable and insecure. So they develop this over-functioning um, hyper-responsibility, which means they're responsible for everything, which then creates this controlling mechanism, which then creates a sense of, of hyper-control or perfectionism. And, and so it's learning to distinguish what's the gift and how was the gift meant to function in the heart of God, and then learning when to use the gift and when the gift isn't helping you. So um, my, tend to, my defensive mechanism is under-functioning or under-performing. So I, I tend to just shut down and just go, well, I, I know I can't meet your needs or expectations, so I'm not even going to try. I'm just going to disappear, and I'm not going to do that. So, so you know, any of these type of behaviors that people function in, it's learning for me when I'm working with them, doing coaching or working with them. It's what's the gift, and let's clarify what the gift is. And then when is the gift serving you? Because often what happens is when someone has a gift, they use the gift to protect themselves. And in, in it's like defensiveness. I use the gift of being defensive because that's the gift that God gave us to then protect myself from God. And, and the problem isn't the capacity to be defensive. The problem is the deeper root of my own fears and insecurities and the lies that I believed about myself and the brokenness that I've accepted. So it's really helping people to clarify that. And the simplest one is, again, something like a, the responsibility. And I, I can't tell you the people that I deal with who are great leaders, but they're so responsible that they become perfectionists. And then in becoming a perfectionist, they just grind everybody around them because it's never good enough, because they've got an internal um, defensive mechanism that says, if I'm good enough, I'll be safe. And they become Pharisees and 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 then destroy and create anxiety in the system. And then the emotions start to pack in and, you know, that, that creates its own ripple effects. wake up feeling depleted, defeated, and overwhelmed. We know this because we're pastors and we felt it. Which is why we created a podcast called The Monday Morning Pastor. It's a weekly podcast to encourage, equip, challenge, and resource pastors and kingdom leaders each Monday morning. We want to tell and hear stories of hope and encouragement in the midst of this unique place and culture where the negative ministry stories seem to get all the airtime. Our hope is that these stories resonate with and remind pastors why we stay in the game. It's a podcast that gives pastors hope and a safe place to be people who need to receive the good news on the day where we feel the most vulnerable. So we invite you to join us and listen to the Monday Morning Pastor Podcast, where pastors can be people. You can find us on kairospartnerships.org, Missio Alliance, or anywhere podcasts are available.
Well, uh, Matt, you've uh, you've been postponing it long enough. I can I can see the fear in your eyes. Uh, it's time we run the gauntlet of questions on anxiety. All right, here's first. I can tell you've taken it seriously just by, oh, by man, the, the laughter. I can see that. I and and I, I I don't feel comfortable unless my guests are afraid. So it is kind of a Hannibal Lecter situation here. All right. Question number one. Uh, my experience with leaders is that because we're driven, because we're uh, driven by productivity and because we're others focused, we're yeah. often the last to know that we're not okay. Who yeah. in your life knows that you're not okay before you know? <laughs> Anybody that I work closely with. Well, actually, you know, my wife would, of course, be the first. So she would know when I'm out of sync and she would she would say something to me. But really, I can, I can remember one time, I, I'll take a short time. So my defensive mechanism is I self-sabotage. So there's a long family history of that. So that's what I do. So I remember one time I was with, I was out bowling with some friends and, with a school and, and I, the leader I knew quite well. And so we're getting to the last of the frame. And, and if I bowled a good, I was going to win. And so I self-sabotage. So I put the ball in my left hand. And I said, I'm going to, I leaned over to my friend. I said, I'm going to do this in my left hand. And she looked at me and she said, you're doing it, Matt. And I thought, I'm doing what? She said, you're sabotaging so that you don't succeed, so that others don't feel the pain that you think you project onto them. And it, it never even entered my mind. But, of course, I was. Yeah. And uh, what a so, gift that so, was. Yeah. So I got I thought, she's right. I'm just I'm, I'm hiding. I'm trying to self-sabotage, protect myself. And so what I really try to do is you know, have conversations with people that I love that are really close to me so that they might see when I'm doing this unconscious dysfunctional behavior so that they can say to me, you know, this isn't going to serve you or us well. And then I just need that anchor. And if I get that a couple of times, then I start to be aware and I can start to catch a pattern. But yeah, so those that are around me, um, I, I, the reason they're around me is because I need their help. Yeah. I, I'm pretty sure I'm in trouble. Yeah, great. I, I'm actually going to take a pause on the gauntlet because you, you've brought something up. Um, we, we do a lot of work with genograms, and some of my guests have talked about family traits. Uh, could you take us a level deeper? Uh, have you ever? Have you? Are you able to name why is it that you self sabotage? What do you? What? Where does that well, come yeah, from? Well, yeah, I mean that's it's easy. So my dad's the youngest of ten kids. He's nine boys in the family. They grew up in Oklahoma, so they're basically redneck farmers. They're poor, insecure, and you know they. So they they define themselves by sports. I grew up in that family, and to condense it without going into great detail was, I'm the youngest of three kids. So me, a middle sister, and an older brother. My dad defined life by sports, and I was born with a ball in my hands, for lack of a better word. I could play any sports. My brother was four years older, couldn't, didn't, wasn't born with a ball in his hand, and so somewhere unconsciously. I don't know how, but I picked up this idea that said, if I succeed, I cause pain in my brother's life. I'm the source of pain in his life. And so I, I picked up this undercurrent of brokenness in my life that says, when I succeed, I cause pain in other people's life. And, and it took me years to figure out that that's a lie. But I have, uh, when I get into trouble, that's what I do. I self-sabotage. And and um, and so I, the success terrifies me. I can face failure, but success terrifies me. So it's learning that and, and starting to own that and then trying to bring God into that process. Uh, it's really helpful, Matt. I, I'm, I'm grateful you went there because um, what we try to coach our listeners and in the work I do 
is the power of naming out loud a lie that you didn't even yeah. know you believed sometimes until you yeah. say it. And then you say yeah. it and you're looking at it like, that's crazy, but I've been operating <laughs> out of that belief for years. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Really helpful. Uh, second, second question is just give us a couple of leadership situations that always generate anxiety in your life. Well, the, the biggest one is when I have to be social. Um, sometimes I, I carry, you know, I, um, a presence in regards to what I do and who I am, um, and what I've accomplished. And, um, and so I have to go into social settings and, and I, I'm really uncomfortable with, with just lights, social, you know, I just recently went to a party, um, and, and I thought, oh, I'm dreading this more than I am something that most people would, you know, I, I would gladly go to work. I would gladly face a group of a thousand people, but to go into a situation where I don't hardly know anybody and I have to be social and just kind of chit chat around things creates huge anxiety within me. And so I, that's why I go back and say, okay, God, um, I'm doing this. This is where I, I'm supposed to be. There's a reason for this. So really anytime I'm in a, in a social setting that is, um, just about social chatter. I feel way outside. I can do one-on-one. -on -one. I love one-on-one. -on -one. As soon as it's a group of six to eight people, just kind of, I get lost. Yeah, you're not sure your so, place. Yeah. Yeah, and so I, you know, that's that's a huge one for me. I know that, and so I just, you just got to keep going back. Okay, how do I do this? And just trying to develop social skills and capacities, but it's not a natural thing for me. So yeah. anytime I'm in that situation, I feel it strongly. Yeah. Outstanding. Uh, I think one source of anxiety for a leader is when we make a mistake. And I'm not talking about moral failure, whopper mistakes that should sideline yeah, yeah. you. I just mean you made a yeah, leadership yeah. mistake because almost all leadership mistakes are made in public. So yeah. um, mistakes are on display. Uh, I wonder if you'd be willing to share a recent leadership mistake you made and how you've recovered from it. Well, you know, I and, and this is, you know, the, the kind of the downside of my gift is what I tend to do is I tend to kind of continually screen through stories to figure out what, what's the essence of it and then um, catch the principle and lose the story. So I don't hold stories in my head. Uh, let me, let me, uh, so right now, a, a very practical situation is right now um, we're trying to plan a trip, my wife and I, and I, I'm not planning it, my wife is, so but she's got to think through. She's got to think of possible quarantines, possible health issues, where airlines are going, where they're not going to go. So all the variables. And, uh, oh, well, let me give you a very practical situation. When my wife traveled, um, the rule is there are no mistakes. And the reason for that is we're traveling. I'm driving. So I've got two or three seconds to make a decision on the road. She's um, the map reader. And she's trying to figure out where we are and where things go. And so in the midst of that uncertainty, we don't know. And so the rule that we have as, as, as a team is there are no wrong choices. If I have to make a choice, I make a choice. And if we have to come back around, we come back around. If she has to make a choice, she has to make a choice. But we don't get angry with each other. So she's planning this trip. Um, she got a day wrong. And so there's no anger. There's, we don't, there's no wrong. It's just uncertainty. And this is this is this is one of our guiding kind of my wife and I's guiding principles is when we're in a situation that's outside of our comfort zone, there are no wrong mistakes. They're just choices that we have to make as best as we can. And then we go back, we revisit it, 
and and then we figure out how do we move forward in that process. So we're we're constantly, and I'm constantly. You know, she's she can be hyper responsible. She feels that if she's made a mistake, it's it's big to her, and I, I keep trying to reinforce to her, it's okay. You're, you're doing something I cannot do. I'm not going to think through the details. I do not have that capacity. You're doing great. We'll just keep revisiting that. And 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 so in the outside of the moral responsibility regarding stupidity, um, just being finite will make mistakes. So we do that a lot, um, and 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 we we continue to kind of reinforce to each other, you know, or we will say to each other because we're in that hyper mode if we're not careful of oh I missed that exit, and we have to catch ourselves and say no no, we're doing the best we can. The world is uncertain. Um, it's not the end of the world, and, and let's decide, okay, what are the decisions we can make to get us back to where we want to go, or do we need to learn from this and make some adjustments? So those, that's, a, that's a core piece for us that we're, um, we're always trying to be aware of that this is, this is normal for us, and it's okay. Yeah, great example. Yeah, uh, you know, I'm, I'm really resonating, especially when you're traveling internationally, driving on a road yeah. you've never driven on before. It just de-escalates all the tension yeah. If you just yeah. recognize that it's not your fault, you've not driven on this road before. Yeah, that's right. That's yeah. right. Oh, great. Okay, two questions to go. The next one is, um, give us a, a recent example of where you have seen anxiety spread in a group like a contagion. Well, the most natural one, you know, so here in Singapore, we're dealing with the uh, coronavirus. And, and so you have two things. You have the data of what it is and how it works as a, a virus. And then you have the emotional implications that, that are rippling through now, not just Singapore, but really through the region. And so, you know, Italy is now, South Korea is now, and you you see fear and really it's, it's as core piece, this fear is rippling through these relationships. So you can see it in um, uh, the mass buying, you know, toilet paper runs or whatever it is, people going to the store. That there's no real rational basis for it, but that taps into that that deep sense of emotional fear, and then they react and they go into this mode of what do I need to do? I mean, I went to the store uh, a couple weeks ago and I was going to buy something. There's a huge long line, and I thought these people are not buying rationally; they're just yeah. buying emotionally. They're, yeah. they're just comforting themselves in this process. So the biggest at an international level right now, we feel the ripple effects of this emotional fear. Um, Airlines, travel, meetings, um, any public place is now, you know, someone coughs, you know, it, you know, so they're, you know, and it's emotional and it, it's just rippling all the way through the nations right now. So that's the, that's kind of the multiple biggest one that I'm aware of because, you know, you go to a room and you cough and you feel the, you know, the emotional presence of I coughed. Oh no. Um, so that's, you know, that's the biggest one for me. Yeah, great. Okay, the the final answer, because, you know, your work is specifically in tension and, and my work is on chronic anxiety. Yeah. Uh, I, I think it's very hard to be captured by chronic anxiety either while laughing or <laughs> while feeling fully loved. So yeah. a question I love to ask every guest, when in your life, Matt, do you feel most fully loved? Yeah. Good question. Um, 
And I, you know, I, I can't help but say a good question always needs silence with that process um, to go with it. We're very comfortable with silence on this show. No problem. Yeah. I think, I think the time I feel most fully loved is from my wife. And uh, when I, I, because uh, of what she has done, what she does is she makes space for me. And, and where I feel threatened is I'm afraid there's no space for me. So that's kind of one of those core things in my life. And what I know from my wife is that she's interested in, in me and she makes space for me, even if it's down to food, what would you like to eat? And I, I rarely, I, you know, I usually don't have strong desires, but I know she is always working to go, what is, where can I make space for me, for you? in this process. And I feel that from her quite often as she works extra hard to, to do things. I mean, even in the most practical sense, um, she's not an accountant and yet we have to do books for Singapore, for private income, Singapore company income, Singapore for the U S and she does those. And, 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 and I feel I know she doesn't like it, but I feel that sacrificial love on her part for us and making space for us because I, I can't do it. I mean, we can hire it out, but right now she's willing to do it. So so it's those little things that she does for me um, that I know come at a cost to her. And I try to thank her for it, but, but it's a very real sense that, um, and I would like to think, you know, the other day I went down and she wanted some potatoes, a certain kind of Japanese potato here in Singapore. And I didn't need to, but I tried to stop and go to this place and find it for her. Now they didn't have any, but try to go out of my way to say, you know, it's just a potato. I'm not that, but I want, I want to make it a safe place for her. So we both try to, what are the needs and how do I go out of my way to meet those needs in a way that is truly honoring. So I feel that probably most strongly from my wife um, in my life, uh, when she uh, does what needs to be done in order to keep us functioning as a as a business. Yeah, that's great. Matt, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for sharing your thoughts. And uh, yeah, just really appreciate your time. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure to be with you. I appreciate your questions. And I know we're pretty like-hearted in this, some of these issues. And I, I, I pray you have favor and much wisdom for your work ahead. For more resources, visit stevecusswords.com or missyoualliance.org.